In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about GDPR, preparing to be acquired, technical debt, and we answer more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 385. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product, you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. What is the word this week, sir? Why is it in Zencaster, it says Colonel Mustard? The Colonel Mustard, that's my name this week. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's going to confuse our editor. But uh, so I'm, I'm trying I'm trying a new thing, creativity. I'm trying to enter a different name each week. Yes. Just to see if I can make you laugh. They, they usually do make me laugh. So I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> for sure. What's going on this week? Well, I did a, a demo yesterday for a customer who's looking at switching over from a competitor. And they have a bunch of different users for the product that are in the competitor. And when I went through and was doing the demo afterwards, he's just like, wow, this is way more advanced than what we're currently using. And I was thinking to myself, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And apparently it was a good thing. So they were looking through and signing up for it. And uh, next week, they're going to kind of reconvene internally. And hopefully, it'll turn into a... Uh, uh, fairly large customer for blue tick nice that's always good to get off a demo and, and get that feeling yep. that you're going to be making more money it's always worth it what was really interesting to me was just the fact that they had said how advanced it was in relation to this competitor because the impression that i get from their website and all the things that it seems like it does is that it's probably more advanced than blue tick but i got the distinct feeling that that was not the case and they i knew that they were having problems with it but it wasn't clear until the phone call and exactly what those problems were and how they were dealing with them and what they were looking to do yep no, that's awesome, man. Is there? Do you have any avenue, if you sign these guys up, that you're able to find more customers like them? I do, but I think it's going to be more word of mouth and relationships than anything else. So it's you know this one came through a personal relationship, so it's not as if I they came in through like a, a marketing channel or anything like that. I I knew who the person was and contacted them and we went from there. Yeah, you know you could also think about going to like built with or data nice, and since they are using this competitor, pulling down the list of people who are using the competitor doing the cold email thing. We talked a little bit about that last week. It's obviously time consuming, but that can be a an interesting avenue if you do know that you are better than a specific competitor. Yeah, I don't know how well built with would identify that because it's through email, so there's not really a lot of, you know, like on-site stuff that's going to tell me, you know, who's using that unless they have a JavaScript widget, which I don't have that, so nobody would be able to use built with to kind of reverse engineer me, but maybe they do. I'd have to go take a look though. Yeah, probably be worth worth a few minutes. So you have been busy, man. I was uh pleased to see an article on indie hackers starting and growing a conference for internet entrepreneurs. Got quite a few upvotes. And you said you spent several hours doing this write-up. It was like one of the most in-depth indie hacker Q&As I had seen. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time on that, probably close to a day and a half to two days. Just, oh, was, my gosh. Yeah, like I, I took it and threw it into Word just because I was curious as how long it actually was. And it came in at like 6,000 words. Right. So it's like a book chapter or two. And it has screenshots and everything. You did a really good job of this. If folks are interested in hearing about what, you know, the history of MicroConf, what it was like starting it, wh how it runs today, and just all the, this is a ton of inside stuff, including revenue, although some of it's like projected revenue, right? I think I think you gave like this year and yeah. some years don't include MicroConf Europe, so it's not all exact, but there's, there's graphs and everything that I, I think the indie hackers folks put together. 
Yeah, they took the attendance numbers and extrapolated what the revenue was from those numbers. So, you know, it's it's off by a little bit, but it's not really that big a deal. It's more the trajectory I think that's important to see. Right. And it's it doesn't include sponsorships at all, right? Which are no. which are a big chunk. Yeah. So anyways, this it was super entertaining. You know, it was fun for me to read because then I could I could be like, Oh yeah, I was like nodding along, like, oh I remember that. Oh, I can't believe Mike remembers this. You know, you were pulling stuff out that old anecdotes that I had uh, I had long forgotten. Yeah, some of the things I had to go back and I looked through my email to see when it was that we first started like talking about microconf and I traced it back to the exact day which I don't know if we talked about like we had a name for it before then and we were talking about it like separately and just calling it a conference or if we had the name and we just kind of picked it on the day and went from there. I don't remember how long we talked about it before we decided to like register the domain name and start moving forward or if it was just like kind of spur of the moment thing. Yeah, I remember it being very spur of the moment and it just kind of made sense. It was like, well, why don't we just do that? And yeah, that's cool. And there's a lot of engagement. I mean, a lot of really good comments and in-depth discussion going on and 36 upvotes. I get the feeling that's quite a few for most articles. So anyways, if you're interested in, in hearing that story, we'll link it up in the show notes, but you can obviously go to uh, IndieHackers.com and give it a search. And then you also went on Justin Jackson's podcast, Mega Maker. That was a couple of weeks ago, right? I think that was last week as well. So we recorded it and then it went live either later that day or the very next day. So uh, it was all about the microconf itself and what starter edition was about and we kind of announced that justin jackson is going to be the mc for starter edition and we did that last year at starter edition as well with jordan gall from carthook he was the mc for that we basically turned over the reins to him and let him kind of run the show at, at starter edition which was really cool because it's nice to be able to sit back a little bit and enjoy the conference a little bit more i don't know how you feel about that but it's nice to yeah let somebody else kind of take the reins for a little while that was something that Xander, our conference coordinator, encouraged us to do because since growth and starter are back to back, we'd be so low energy by the fourth day of trying to MC and run the conference that I think he knew that the it just wouldn't come off as as well as it could. And Jordan certainly knocked it out of the park as the MC. I thought it was really, really good. And to get another style up there on stage is fun. And, you know, with Starter, Justin's such a good fit for it because he's that is really the crowd that he is talking to every day and, and interacting with. So he knows that crowd. Perhaps these days, you know, better than I do, in all honesty. I mean, it was years ago that I was really knee-deep in all of the, you know, the kind of transitioning from developer to, to marketer and talking about all that stuff. And, and he just has his finger on the pulse of that. So I think he's a good fit to MC at this year. And he's also doing a talk, which is kind of cool. So how about you? What have you been up to? I've just been working, kicking back a little bit. I have a spring break coming in a week or two, and we are heading down to Florida. It's starting to warm up in Minneapolis, but still in the, still in the 30s, and we want to get some sun. So it's nice. It's an easy flight down to Miami, and we rented a big old Airbnb uh, off of a key, and we're looking forward to that. I was enjoying, I don't know if you've heard it, but Sherry was on Mixergy. It's actually her second time on Mixergy. Her first time, it was when she interviewed Andrew Warner and put it on Zen Founder, and he like simulcasts that basically onto Mixergy. But this time, it's called Keeping Your Shit Together as a Founder, and it's Andrew Warner interviewing Sherry about the book and about you know the, the stuff she's, she's doing in the entrepreneurial community. So it's really pretty intense interview, but it's really good. Have you had a chance to listen to it? 
I have not, no. So I don't get a chance to listen to Mixergy too often. And I'm actually about two months behind on most of my podcasts at the moment anyway. So Yeah. So I also I listen to select Mixergy interviews just because there there's a lot of them and they are long. But this this is one that obviously I, I jumped on. I just wanted to hear the content. So it's uh it's a good one. We'll link it up in the show notes, but you can obviously search for Sherry Walling, Mixergy, and find that in Google. Awesome. So what are we talking about today? Well, we're going to answer a bunch of listener questions, see how many we get through. It was cool. We were down to one listener question. And I, you know, when we announced that on the show, I think we're up to 12 or 15 now. And so we can kind of hammer through. I feel like this cadence of kind of every other week answering these questions is has become something that I've enjoyed and I've, I've gotten positive feedback about it, especially the more voicemails are even better because it shows people that there are all these different people with different businesses listening to this show, you know, and you and I know we have 10 of thousands of listeners, but it's like, as a listener, you don't know that. Like, it would be hard to know or understand, you know, your fellow listeners and your fellow entrepreneurs doing it. So uh, I've enjoyed these and, and I think we'll, we'll keep doing it as long as the questions keep coming in. So our first question today is for me, it's actually from Guy Lewis. He said, the question I have is what would Rob wished he had prepared in advance of going through the process of selling Drip? I imagine there might be things like intellectual property he may have purchased the use of with his own name, but now needed to be transferred to the company, manuals and processes, bank issues such as PayPal not being able to transfer, etc. The list could be endless, maybe a good topic for a book. I've actually thought about this. So there's there's two things I wanted to say here. The first is I'm kind of going to make an announcement, but not really an announcement, Mike. I haven't even told you this. So I've started writing what I think may become a book. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the exact right response. But I don't know if it will yet. Like I that you know my goal for this year is not to tackle any big new projects. But I sat down, it was about a month ago, and I could feel, you know, there's a lot to tell. There's a lot of story that has happened since since the last book I wrote. And maybe it'll just be about Drip and the trials and tribulations and the, you know, the, the lost year of, of personal finance hell and, and being unable to fund the business and then the year of the acquisition and then the year of moving. And as I started thinking about it, I was like, is this interesting enough? Will anyone care? So I sat down with a notebook and I just wrote out what are the most, what were the most stressful parts of my life, both personally, professionally since 2011 in essence. And the list was crazy long. And I've each of them just shaped into this this narrative, and they link together in this very interesting way. Of you know, even if I were to write about acquiring Hitel and not use it in the book, it still is like cathartic for me to write about the process of growing it and then selling it. And there's a bunch of stress that went along with that sale. And then I started just thinking about all the stuff that that happened growing Drip. So I made this big list, and it was. It, when I look at it, I feel like it's it's interesting enough that it's at least worth kind of sitting down and, and hacking some stuff out. And so I had like three pages of just bulleted lists, right? And about a week and a half ago, you know, I just sat down one evening, I uh, started doing it on a weekend, and the stuff just, pour, it's kind of writing itself because it's a narrative, right? And I'm pulling out actionable things, but I'm trying to get the grit of what it was actually like. And I'm going back. I mean, I have I have emails, I have Voxers, I have like all this, you know, I have my microconf talk from last year talking about the sale and my thought process. So I started listening to that and transcribing pieces of it. I have, a, it's cool in this day and age, all the digital elements that we have, because I can't remember exact dates, but Gmail sure doesn't forget. You know, it remembers the exact date of this email that I sent to Derek about this topic. And so 
I've literally just been doing it on the side, almost as a journal, but trying to be very honest about everything, you know, like trying not to sugarcoat things. And I'm about 7,000 words in, and it has just kind of poured out of me. It's all out of order. I just pick the next thing on the list that I find. I think, man, I really want to write about that today. And, and I'm kind of cranking it out. So I don't know if it will be a book. I don't know if I will ever release it, but it's something that I think could have potential to be that. So it was funny when I got this question, I started thinking, yeah, maybe maybe that should be a piece of this because I don't just want it to be a narrative. I actually want it to be in typical kind of our podcast style and microcom style. I want it to have lessons that people can take away and, and whether they're acquired or not, even just the growing part of it, the mistakes that they can avoid that I made or, or smart decisions that we made that I feel like people could learn from. Well, I think there's two pieces of that because there's there's people who would read that just because, you know, like they, they know who you are or they've seen you speak and they just want the inside baseball, so to speak. And they're interested in the story. And I totally hear what you're saying about having the lessons, but I think you could, in theory, do both where you've got the story itself and then and after each chapter or after each section, you have like a list of things that you personally pull out and be like, here are the lessons that you could take away from this. Here's the story piece of it. And then here's the lessons that go with each of these. And some of them may not have any lessons at all. It's just, you know, something happened and you got lucky or unlucky and you just had to deal with the consequences or fallout. And, you know, there may not have been anything that you could do about it. And maybe that's the lessons like you can't plan for everything. But I think that that's it's still going to be interesting to a lot of people. Yeah, I appreciate that. I kind of think of it as like, you know, I think of any microcom talk I've ever given, or at least the, the best talks that I've given tend to be a story, you know, like a hero's journey, and then pulling out like super actionable tactical things. And so that that's kind of how I'm envisioning it. I've read only a couple books like that. So it's going to be, I like it because it's different. It's not just a narrative, but it, there is a danger also of, of pulling it. I, I want them to be non-obvious takeaways, right? You know, it's not like work hard and persevere and you will make, you know, it's not stupid stuff like that. But I do think I realize that I, I think I'm telling myself that I don't know if it'll be a book so that I don't feel Compelled, any pressure yes. or anxiety. <laughs> yep. I don't want to feel forced to write it. I don't want the writing to feel forced. I'm telling myself no one will ever read this because I want to tell the story honestly, because there's obviously a lot that went on that no one else knows, you know what I'm saying? That was very internal. That was between Derek and I, or between Clay and I, or whatever. And eventually I'm sure I'll have to, you know, edit some of that out, but I'm trying to just get it all out and then evaluate, is this worth doing? Or maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's a ebook or maybe it's a series of blog posts that I release, or maybe it's an audiobook that I read. I, I don't even know, you know, but it's a, uh, it's an interesting project. So hopefully it'll turn into something. Yeah. And if it doesn't, I mean, then, you know, you did it for yourself and that's not a big deal either. I mean, there's, there's something to be said for just doing things for yourself once in a while. So. Yeah, exactly. Even if that's what, what I said is like, what's the worst that can happen? I should just write this out, you know, and if nothing else, my kids can read it someday or something. So all of this aside and back to the question, like, are there any, I guess, top level things that you can take away that you wish you had done that were probably major things that you either overlooked or hadn't thought about upfront that needed to be transferred or that you wish you had done? Yeah. So the prep work that I think everyone should do that you don't think about is it's far more mental prep work than anything else. And so I listened to the book Built to Sell like three or four times. I listened to Finish Big multiple times. I did a lot of journaling. I did a lot of thinking. You have to know what your deal breakers are. You have to know probably what your drop dead price is. You know, there's a bunch of stuff that you need to think about. And that is the prep work that I would focus on. I'll just put that out there. First and foremost, spend more time doing that. The examples that the guy brought up, the guy who answered the question, 
most of these were not an issue. He, he brought up uh, intellectual property. I had already transferred all of that into you know a, an LLC. If I hadn't done that, it would have been disastrous because it would have been a huge pain in the ass. One big thing that I do think you need to think about as you're building your company is to have clean IP, meaning that all of your contractors who touch your code, all of your employees who touch your code, you need to have them sign some kind of in their employment agreement, it should say everything I do, the company owns with it. And I had that and I had only missed one contractor and I went back and, and asked him nicely and, and we still had a good relationship and everything was fine. Had I not had that, it would have been, it would have been really tough because when we went through the acquisition, they, they needed that, right? They're not, this funded company is not going to pay a premium for my startup if there are IP holes that someone could come back later and sue them or ask for ownership of the code or whatever. It's not something you think about when you're, you know, a two, four, five person startup, but it's something that you should definitely, um, definitely have. And I signed to the same employment agreement, right? And Derek signed. I mean, even as co-founders, we had to have agreements that basically drip the S corp that owned everything owned everything that Derek and I couldn't walk away with that. So that's one thing I would think about. Guy mentioned manuals and processes. That was not an issue because we were an eight person team and they were acquiring the team. You know, and they weren't looking to automate everything. I think if the team was walking away, yes, they would want manuals and processes to hand off to the next team. But there was zero questions about that. There were more questions about what our kind of vacation policy and, and HR stuff and employment agreements look like than anything like that. In terms of bank issues, they didn't acquire, you know, they didn't acquire the company. If you think about it, they acquired all the assets of the company. And that's typically how it's done because they don't want any of the liabilities. So they left an S Corp that Derek and I still own the same amount that we, you know, we've always owned of it. They just bought all the, the internal assets of it, including the code and the goodwill and the, you know, the, the recurring revenue and, you know, employment agreements and all, you know, all that stuff. So as a result, the corp still owns the bank accounts. Like they didn't acquire any of that stuff. And, uh, thankfully, you know, we, we never had to set up a, a PayPal account or anything like that. Same thing with domain names. I mean, we just transferred them over, right? They were all in a GoDaddy account. And we transferred them over to their GoDaddy account. So the only other thing I could think of as I was going through this list that I think would be interesting to think about is they asked for, and this is typical standard due diligence stuff, all corporate documentation, like your your articles of incorporation, every single amendment you've ever made to them. So everything. So have that all in one place because going out and finding it and scanning it is a pain in the ass. So right, like having record keeping doesn't seem like a big deal when you are a three-person startup or when you're a solo founder. But if you ever plan on being acquired, you probably want all of this stuff somewhere so it doesn't take you weeks to put these docs together. And the next thing is having really solid books, like basically having income statements for every month. Even if that, for me, it was literally just a Google Doc with revenue, expenses, and that kind of stuff. Um, I also had zero XERO, the accounting software, that they could look at. But when they were asking for high-level numbers, top-line revenue, and that kind of stuff, I was sending them, sending them Google Docs. And then I'm trying to think, you know, just having solid records of like, they're going to ask every single service you use. Like what are, what's every SaaS app that you pay for? And so you're going to want to be able to, hopefully they're all on a credit card and you can just go to the credit card. That's what I did. And just started listing those out and what the, what the things were. They asked for copies of leases and, you know, every contract you've ever signed for every service. Transferring the Stripe account, of course, did, did happen because all the subscriptions, you know, were in there. That's kind of the high-level overview, and I think it's something that I hadn't thought about. You know, there, when there's a technology transfer, you think more about, boy, the tech has to be good and, and it has to be automated and you want processes in place. When it's a company acquisition, it can be different. You know, when, when people bought Hittail just as a product, they didn't ask for articles of incorporation because they weren't buying the team. You know, it wasn't a strategic acquisition. So those are my high-level thoughts. You have, does that make sense? 
No, it totally makes sense. I hadn't realized that they did not acquire the entire company itself, and they were just acquiring the assets from the company. So, I mean, that's the way that my wife had purchased her the fitness studio that was in town. She didn't acquire the business; she acquired the assets of the business. And I was very clear to her about like just because of the records of the business were obviously a little screwy, and the the person who owned the business before couldn't really explain certain things and was a little cagey about certain pieces of it. And I'm just like, do not acquire the business because if let's say that she's got a car for example that is owned by the business if you acquire the business you're also acquiring the debts that go with it and any liens or anything else that goes with it so you will be on the hook for those things and if you don't know about it it doesn't matter you still have acquired them which may suck so that's right if you buy the company you acquire the assets and all liabilities and that's why almost without exception Anyone who knows what they're doing, when they buy a company, quote unquote, they're just buying the assets of the business. That's the standard. Like when Facebook bought Instagram, you can bet their lawyers did not buy the Instagram LLC or C Corp. They bought just the assets of it. And so as a result, you have to then list out what all the assets are, which is interesting. Yeah. You know, because you have to list out your code and the database and this, and it's just this big long list of stuff. Yeah. And with my wife, we actually had, there, there was a, a tax bill that ended up coming in and it was sent to her. And she's like, no, this isn't me because I didn't acquire the business. So there was stuff that came up afterwards that had she acquired it, she would have been stuck with it and there was nothing she would have been able to do. The other thing I find interesting is that when I worked for, for Pedestal Software and they got acquired by Altiris, the Altiris team, the acquisition team came in and they handed us, uh, like all the employees, these documents that we had to sign that were basically a, more or less a copy of what our previous agreement with Pedestal had been for all the like IP rights and signing them over to Pedestal, but it was their version of it. So it's like we'd already signed all the stuff, but they said, yes, that's fine and everything looks good, but you also have to sign these, which I think it was maybe their updated way of like covering additional holes or something like that. I'm not sure. I wonder, yeah, our, I, I guess our agreements were perhaps good enough for their lawyers. You know, they probably looked at them and said, this covers everything. Because it was recent. I mean, it was within the last year or something that everyone had signed. Because, see, I broke everything out. Numa Group, which is kind of my umbrella LLC that owns a bunch of stuff, it owned Drip until maybe nine or 10 months before Drip was acquired. And I was already in the process of ripping it out of Numa Group because that was when Derek was taking some equity in the company and, and he essentially you know, retroactively became co-founder. And so I was already in that process, which was painful and agonizing and took like five months and more money than it should have. But so Drip was already in an S Corp and I was very, very thankful for that because if it had not been, it would have been a fiasco to try to do it during the negotiation and the acquisition process. So when that all happened, I basically fired all of us from Numa Group. We all got new jobs with Drip S Corp, Drip Incorporated. And we all signed agreements at that point again, even though some of us had already signed them with Numa Group. Then, essentially, when Leadpages uh, acquired us, we all got fired from Drip Incorporated and all got new employment agreements with Leadpages. But there was no, I mean, I think they probably had some IP stuff in, in their employment agreement as well, which is fine, right? Because then anything you do, you know, you do for them, they own, but they didn't have a specific additional stuff we had to sign. Yeah, I wonder if it, maybe it was because Altiris was a public company and that they could have had additional things that they had to cover themselves. I don't know. Yeah, I can see that. Yep, makes sense. Cool. Well, thanks for the question, Guy. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is actually not a question. It's some kudos for us, and it's a voicemail. 
Oh, yeah, just listen to episode 838 with the readers' questions. And I must say, it was great to get that interactive feel to the podcast. I just want to give you guys some feedback. Long-time listener. My name's Chris. And uh, I really enjoyed that episode, just hearing those questions and getting some more of your perspectives and your background and experience. So sorry about the power cuts. I'm in New Jersey. I suffered from them, too. So I hope everybody's back up and fully powered soon. Take care, guys. Thank you again. Keep up the good work. Awesome. Thanks for calling in, Chris. I kind of wanted to play that because it's uh, it's just good to hear feedback and folks' opinion. He was he said episode 838, but I think he meant 383, which was just another one of these Q&A episodes. And I specifically mentioned in that one that I liked doing them more often and that I liked getting voicemails because it shows, you know, it kind of has the interaction. So thanks for writing in. Always, always happy to hear from, from folks. And our next question is from Mr. Andrew Connell about GDPR. Hey, Robin, Mike. This is Andrew Connell from Voitanos. That's Voitanos.io. Uh, I do online training, and I do it for everybody around the world or for developers around the world. And with the coming effectiveness of the GDPR for data privacy and personal privacy of data uh, out of Europe, I'm curious if you guys can comment a little bit. Of course, not being lawyers, I'm not a lawyer either, but just trying to think about like what kinds of things developers really need to be paying attention to, what kind of things you need to be careful of. And I'm asking you guys because it's also very much uh, in the way of how we've all kind of, listeners of your show have worked on doing like email-based marketing and collecting email addresses and potentially phone numbers and other information about users. So how do you need to, what kinds of things you need to think about? I've seen things about privacy statements that you need to have on your site, uh, how you're collecting the data, what, how it's being used, how you're protecting it, all of those kinds of things. I'm just kind of curious, you know, what, what things do you really need to be paying attention to? And, you know, there's probably the gold standard, but also, you know, what's the standard that you can do where you just feel like, you know, you're at least defensible? So maybe you're collecting data and the user finds out that, you know, they decide that they no longer want to be tracked by you. Can you just go back to them and say, yes, I tracked you by your email address, and here's all the information I have about you, and yes, if you want me to delete you, I can delete you. Just kind of curious if you guys have some comments there or maybe even have somebody who is a lawyer who can jump on the show and maybe comment. Thanks a lot. Love the show, and see you guys in Vegas. Ah, the riveting conversation topic of GDPR. Oh, joy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone's thinking about it, so it's important. It's just such a fiasco. I, I'm going to use the word stupid a lot in this conversation because I, <laughs> big parts of it, I think, are really dumb. There's a 250-page doc or whatever, and, and Brendan, my senior director of product, went through the entire thing. And the end result is going to wind up being something like, we have to write a bunch of internal policies and we're going to add a checkbox to a to a form for our users, you know. And that's very similar to what Mailchimp is doing and ActiveCampaign, you know, all the all the ESPs. So I'll stop there and and circle back. I know because I've been talking a lot this episode. I know that you saw a talk at FemtoConf about it, and I'm sure you have other thoughts on this. Again, couching it that we aren't lawyers, we are not giving personal advice to anyone, and certainly don't have a, an exhaustive understanding of this. But this is just general, you know, our general thoughts on on what we what we feel like uh, folks might want to do for GDPR. Yeah, so the talk that I saw in FemtoConf, there's a link, we'll post it in the show notes uh, from Aleth, who she's the one who gave the talk. And there's a link to an overview of her talk as a recap from Christoph, and he runs FemtoConf with Benedict. And you can go out there, there's a an overview of it, but the I guess it, I'll say it glosses over certain details that she talked about specifically. So with GDPR, the thing that you really have to make sure that you're aware of is that if you touch the data in any way, shape, or form, you're on the hook 
for it. And you have to make sure that you are both protecting it. And if you are able to personally identify somebody that you are complying to those GDPR policies. Now, if you have like metadata about somebody like custom fields or something like that, that's not considered personally identifiable information, but there are certain pieces that are. So for example, an email address would be personally identifiable. An IP address would be personally identifiable. First name, last name, address, those kinds of things. But if you have something that is like you, you tag somebody, that's not considered personally identifiable, but you have to spell it out in your privacy policy what you are doing with those types of things. Are you are you adding those types of things? How is an IP address personally identifiable? That's stupid. So that's my first I, stupid. Let's do a drinking game. <laughs> it's not personally identifiable because an IP address, A, it can change constantly. B, you could be a, a single IP address for 100 people at a company. D, I mean, there's so many ways that that's not I will stop. All right. I'm going to, it's not your I fault. Know. I know. you, Mike. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you made me cry. Keep going. Keep going. I like it. Yeah. So you just have to be careful about what it is that you're doing with that data. A couple of the big things that I've seen that you have to really pay attention to if you're uh, if you're selling stuff is that one people have to be able to request a copy of all of the data that is associated with them so if you're running a SaaS app and it's collecting information about like let's say it's a drip and it's an ESP and your customers are, are gathering information with, based on that email address, the person who owns that email address has to be able to come in and say, hey, show me everything that you've collected about me. And you have to provide them with a mechanism to give them that data dump. And I've seen this recently, like Facebook is doing this, Twitter is doing this, but you can go and you can request a download of all the information that Facebook has on you. Same thing with Twitter, you can get a download of it. And uh, I haven't done that with mine yet, but my understanding is that it is absurd and obscene the amount of data that Facebook has on you, for example. And there's obviously backlash in the news right now about the amount of data and the how personal it can be in certain cases. But that's something you have to pay attention to when you're trying to comply to these. Like you need to be give that to somebody. But here's what I would say is if 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 you're a developer, like you you don't have to have an automated way. They can email you and you can go run a SQL query. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't it's like I would not go and build some big console or anything. Like, especially as a small company, you know that you can do stuff agile, lowercase a, and just do it when it happens. Do just in time, whatever. And they can also request that you have to delete everything. Then at that point, the first time, it's going to be a pain in the butt, but you're going to write that SQL query to delete it out. You're probably going to break something, and then you're going to fix it. And then the next time, you'll have the, the same query. So that's that's how I would think about it as, you know, if you're Facebook, that's not going to work, right? Because it's not scalable. But the odds of you getting a request when you have five, you know, one thousand users or five thousand users, it's pretty low. Right. The the downside of that though is that like the and I was just about to mention that with deleting information because you you do have to comply to their right to be forgotten clauses. So those are if somebody which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Sorry, that was a stupid number, <laughs> number two. two. <laughs> I think you said it in the the middle of another other comment as well. So we'll we'll say it's three. So. The right to be forgotten says that somebody can say, hey, completely forget about me. And the problem I have with this is that where do you draw the line for that? And I know that there's a timeline that you have in which that you can say, okay, we'll get this taken care of. And you have a certain amount of time where there's 14 days or 30 days to get rid of the data. But the question I have in my mind is that, yes, I understand that that applies to backups. 
but does that mean you have to go into your backups or you only have you are only allowed to basically hold 30 days worth of backups so let's for the sake of argument say that it's 30 days like is that all you're allowed to maintain because that seems scary yep that's why this is insane is that it's it's legislation it's government getting involved in something that technically is a bad choice for a company or a bad choice for a business you know what i'm saying like we know as it people as developers as professionals as dbas you want to have weekly backups or monthly backups for literally years probably and it's not so you can hoard and use a bunch of information it's so if stuff goes sideways at some point and, and you realize you have this big error, you can you always go back. It's a safety mechanism. Right. The other thing that bugs me about this is the right to be forgotten. I, I get the intent and I understand it, but let's say that somebody comes to you and says, okay, I want you to forget about Rob. I want, I want Drip to forget about Mike Tabor. Okay, great. What happens in three days if my contact information makes it back into Drip? How do you prevent my information from going back into the system without knowing who I am and keeping track of that? Like that's a total chicken and egg problem. And it's but it's not and none of that as far as we've seen is in GDPR. So that isn't addressed. So yeah, the example is you say you want the right to be forgotten. You know, you sign up for Rob Walling's newsletter and you, Mike Tabor, say, I want to be pulled out of there. So you're pulled out. But what if you're in 10 of our other customers' accounts? Are you only forgotten out of that one account? Or are you forgotten out of everyone? And it's not specified. And then, like you said, what if you then go to sign up you know, to a new newsletter tomorrow and XYZ person is also hosted on Drip? So it's just, it's, I don't know, there's so many edge cases. Yes, so many edge cases. Yeah, but the problem is every version is going to be this much of a pain in the ass. So if they do V2 in a year, think of how many person hours and how many dollars have been pissed away by companies that would otherwise have been productive, building products, doing interesting things, creating jobs, you know, marketing that, I mean, alone, just on the Drip team, which is not a huge app, we've, we've wasted hundreds of hours. And thousands, if not tens of thousands, on on legal fees. You know, just having our lawyers advise and stuff, and that sucks. That's money that could have actually been productive, and instead, it's sitting here dealing with with what essentially is legislation. Another issue I have is that in the U.S., they often will pass things, they'll pass laws like this, but they will exempt small businesses. So if you're 25 employees or less, you don't have to comply to certain things, and they do that because they don't want to put an undue burden on small companies because small companies are the ones that don't have the budget, that don't have in-house counsel, and that don't have the bandwidth to to handle 250 pages doc that you know is completely opaque and everyone's confused about and freaking out and that's i think there should be an exception like isn't this really meant to be for google and facebook and apple and fortune 1000 or fortune 5000 companies how much do they care about these tiny little you know three person five person ten person companies that are that are they're just trying to run a business they're just trying to make a living and and that's where i think they overlook having some kind of exemption for for small businesses yeah, there's certain pieces of it that are exempt. So, like, there's the the security officer, like a dedicated security officer, like stuff like that. I believe is exempt. Like, if you're a small business below a certain size, like you don't have to have that. But the reality at the end of the day is, if you're a single owner, like that's you anyway. So it almost doesn't matter. But like, yeah, I I, I totally agree. Like, they're just trying to they they've overreached is really what it comes down to, and it doesn't make sense for much smaller businesses to try and have to comply to that. And again. You and I agree, like we understand the spirit of what they are trying to do. So I don't disagree with any of that. I disagree with the amount of burden that they're placing on all these small businesses. Everyone's talking about this right now. And it's it's a waste of everyone's time. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, when I say everyone in our little, in our circles, you know, in the startup circles, like, yes, Facebook should worry about it, but it's like, you know, so much wasted bandwidth. The other thing that I saw that was interesting was that you have to allow the, like when you spell out in your privacy policy, what data you have that you're collecting and what you're using it for, you also have to give the person the ability to opt out of individual pieces of it, which to me seems like that's, uh, that's absurd. Like, I don't know why you would allow that. Like that's, yeah, that's interesting. I have not come across that. I haven't, I don't know about that. So that's an interesting piece. Let me give you an example. Like if on your website, you have Google Analytics and uh, Facebook Pixel and Drip Widget, for example, somebody can come and say, I don't want you to track me using Facebook Pixels. But the other things are okay, just not that. I So I haven't heard, again, I had a guy who read all 250 pages of it, and that is not on our list. So I would look to see if perhaps there's an exemption or there's something in there that says you can otherwise not do that. Because, you know, again, I haven't heard anyone else talk about that. But the thing is, there's a there's a piece that revolves around whether or not you're a data processor or a data controller. And that's the part that that revolves on. And you, you had mentioned earlier that there was a question in your mind about whether or not if somebody asked to be forgotten, is it just for that one account or is it for like all of them? My understanding is it's all of them. So they could go to Facebook, like you don't have control over it, but they could go to Facebook and say, opt me out of everything. Don't track me. Forget me completely. But that has a trickle down effect on you like running drip, because if you guys use the Facebook pixel to track people, then you can't track me, for example. And Facebook is, should essentially block it. Well, again, it goes back to like, how do you keep track of that unless you know who the person is to not track them? Right. Yeah. So here's, you know, to be honest, I asked someone who I know is familiar with GDPR and had spent some time looking at it. And he runs a a small business, you know, less than 10 employees. And I was saying, what are you actually going to do here? And he said he is going to handle things as they come in, in terms of the requests, in terms of deleting, and in terms of, you know, giving a report of what they know. And he is seriously considering not creating all the documents because they basically say you have to have like these, there's like 10 policies or 12 policies, all this internal documentation you're supposed to have, processes to do this. He was going to say that we are, his company is compliant with the spirit of GDPR and, you know, and we'll live up to the requests, but that they, you know, do not have all of those policies in place, but that they do whatever. It, it was like some verbiage of like, we, we believe in the spirit of it. We will comply as needed type thing with the thought in mind that a, he's not in Europe, right? So he's not a European business. So it would be very unlikely that that the EU is going to reach across the pond and come and try to take some little 10 person company out because that what they, you know, like I was saying, this is really more intended. My understanding is more intended for these larger companies. So that's the balance is being practical about it, not putting your head in the sand, right? And not doing anything, but understanding some basic fundamentals, which is kind of what we've talked about here. If folks are opting in to hear from you or receive marketing, then they, there's supposed to be a specific checkbox that says you agree to the privacy policy and, you know, our terms of service or whatever, which again, I think is is idiotic because they kind of already know that, right? It's like really a checkbox and them checking a checkbox is going to make a difference. It's like agreeing to a EULA, right? An end user license agreement with Apple. No one reads those things. And so you're going to put a checkbox with a link and it's just going to become this rote thing that everyone does. It's not going to change anything, but that is what it says technically. So consider if you're asking for, you know, if you're keeping your customer's customer's data somewhere, it gets more complicated. Now in Andrew's case, you know, he runs online training. So he has uh, online training, video training, people can sign in. He's not collecting his customers' customers' data. So it's very much more simplified. And I would consider that kind of a just-in-time, you know, or a simplified approach to it if, if I were in his shoes. 
How about you, Mike? You want to talk about how every aspect of your business is not going to comply and uh, open yourself up towards the EU coming? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's kind of the interesting thing is that you know for businesses that are not based in Europe, they they don't have the jurisdiction to force you to do any of that anyway. So like, there's literally nothing that they can do. They can't sue you and say like, oh, you are not compliant to this. They could sue you in U.S. court. They could. It, in, the EU could file a suit in Massachusetts court against you. And say this is our law, and there were, and you would have to fight it out. You would have to, you would have to settle, or you'd have to fight. The odds of that happening, though, for you, are almost non-existent. But, but the thing is, there's a difference between them filing suit versus them having jurisdiction over it. And the sucky part would be, you're going to have to comply to it just to make that lawsuit go away, or you're going to have to fight it, which you'll win if you fight, but you're going to incur a ton of legal fees over over the course of doing that. So, you know, because they just they don't have the jurisdiction and that's what the court would rule. You might be able to, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend like trying to fight it yourself and be your own lawyer there, but I'm sure that somebody probably is skilled enough to be able to do that, but I wouldn't want to be that person. You know, I wouldn't want to risk it. Well, here's another option I heard someone throw out. They said, EU customers are less than 10% of my business. I'm just going to not, I'm going to reject, like not allow EU customers anymore because I don't have the bandwidth to do it. That's what someone told me. And I thought that was really interesting. You know, I mean, that's a a super bummer, but it's like at some point you have to throw your hands up and you either do IP detection or you just ask, are you in the EU? Yes or no. And if they say yes, you, you basically, you know, during the signup, you just say, sorry, we can't support you due to GDPR. It's pretty fascinating. I mean, I hope it does not come to that, but I can imagine some businesses, it's just going to be easier simpler to do that. Yeah. And I've heard some people try to look, uh, I think it, it came up at MicroConf Europe this past year about the the legislation. And there was uh, someone there I, I met who was basically basing an entire business idea off of the idea that there were going to be US-based businesses who aren't going to comply to GDPR. And they were going to say, oh, well, you can use our service and you will be compliant. And I disagree that that's a great business idea because really all they have to do is comply and then suddenly it doesn't, you know, like your whole business value proposition kind of goes out the window. So yeah, obviously it's complicated, but I do think there's a pragmatic way to approach this. Um, As with any legislation, it will kind of iron itself out. It it will be more understood as you watch, you know, you can watch companies like MailChimp or uh, Drip Lead Pages or whatever, GitHub or Slack and watch how they handle it and then evaluate, you know, can I do so, do I need to do similar things? And, And you can also read that that 250-page doc and, uh, and and try to sort it out. But I don't I don't think it's as bad as people make it out. I'm, I'm hoping it's not going to be that way. I do think if you're in the EU, it, there is definitely more of a cause for concern if you're running a business. So thanks for the question, Andrew. I think that was super helpful and a timely topic to discuss. So I think with that question, we'll wrap things up for the day. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupsforrustofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt for Wilder Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestos.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.